0: From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. When did it all begin, this information war? Anyone who knows history knows that propaganda goes back thousands of years. The Greeks used it, so did the Romans. And in the early days of the Soviet Union, Bolshevik leader Vladimir Lenin was a master of propaganda as a political instrument. Propaganda, agitacja, ideologiczka rabota. All of these instruments were used domestically in Russia to consolidate the revolution and internationally as part of the Soviet Union's foreign policy. The Soviet Union no longer exists and Russia's message is no longer the ideological promotion of Marxism-Leninism. But some of the same propaganda techniques are alive and well and other countries besides Russia are employing them. If you wanted to pinpoint a time when our modern information war began, you could dial back to 2007, Estonia, and the controversy over the bronze soldier statue, a monument that stood in the heart of the capital Tallinn, honoring Soviet soldiers from World War II, a remnant of Soviet times, but for many Estonians, a painful reminder of Soviet occupation of that Baltic country. If that has a certain resonance for Americans watching the toppling of monuments to Confederate soldiers here at home, it should.
1: So we saw, I think, something very pertinent for the climate in the United States today in Estonia in 2007, when Russia used the removal of a Soviet war statue from the center of Tallinn to a military cemetery on its outskirts as a flashpoint to create protest and division and eventually a riot.
0: That's Nina Jankowicz, who's a disinformation fellow here at the Woodrow Wilson Center. She also got her M.A. in Russian, Eurasian, and East European studies from Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, where I teach. They had been pushing basically pro-Soviet
1: nostalgic
0: historical
1: narratives for a long time that exploited grievances that ethnic Russians in Estonia had about how they were treated by the post-Soviet Estonian government. The removal of the statue was a flashpoint for these protests that had been basically urged by the Russian language media and And not only that, the Russian intelligence and diplomatic services in Estonia as well. So it's a bit more of a cut and dry case than the sort of things that we are seeing today here in the United States. But certainly we've seen RT and Sputnik really manipulating the narratives around the George Floyd protests here in the United States and the removal of Confederate monuments.
0: Nina Jankowicz has just published a book, How to Lose the Information War. Russia, fake news, and the future of conflict. And she says there's a lesson for the United States in how Estonia dealt with its crisis.
1: The result wasn't to say, oh, this was a Russian narrative and anybody who supported it is treasonous. No, rather than playing what I call whack-a-troll in real life, <laughs> the Estonian government decided to invest in education, invest in Russian language media, invest in integration activities to heal that fissure in society, that ethnic fissure, that governance fissure, and make themselves more resilient in the long run to
0: those sorts of narratives. But the United States is still right in the middle of the controversy over those Confederate monuments. I don't see necessarily that the goal for Russia is to promote a Russian worldview the
1: same way it did during the Soviet era. The goal is really unscrupulous, in my opinion, looking at different sides of the political spectrum and trying to manipulate grievances and fissures in order to turn ourselves against one another, to create more discord in Western society, to undermine our democracy, rather than, again, putting forth that Soviet worldview the way that we saw with Soviet propaganda. And then the tools and tactics are, of course, different as well. I shudder to think about what the Soviet Union might have achieved had the internet been around in those days, because (laughs) it allows Anybody with a social media account and a credit card or sometimes even just knowledge of how to target social media messages online, make things go viral, to target those messages at exactly the people who are going to be most vulnerable to them. And that's what allows Russian disinformation of today's day and age to travel faster and farther and be more effective in the long
0: run. One thing that I jotted down, the most convincing narratives are those grounded in truth that exploit divisions in society. And I actually underlined grounded in truth because I think that's important.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's a huge misconception here in the United States and in some other Western countries as well. And I think that's because the term fake news has become so popularized, and yet it means very little. But people think, again, that it's grounded in cut and dry fakes. But especially with what we've been seeing over the past couple of months during the coronavirus crisis, I think it's become increasingly clear that emotional narratives – in disinformation are the ones that are most successful. So they will seize on something that is pre-existing in society and amplify that fissure, manipulate that fissure in order to drive more animosity, whether that's in the online environment or in policy making, etc. And again, I think this is a key misconception. Not only in our policy making, it's not just about debunking something. You can't just debunk people's feelings, right? These are deep-seated beliefs that they've had for many, many years that they're being fed more information and more manipulative narratives about.
0: Do you believe that this is actually an information war?
1: I do. I at least think that Russia sees it that way. And I think it's important to recognize that Russia sees it that way if we're going to create this response, the holistic, whole of government, whole of society response that we need to really counter what Russia and other bad actors are doing. And I think that's another important point, too. The book is just about Russia, but the conclusions are important not only for foreign disinformation, but for domestic disinformation as well. We need to understand that the informational battleground or our information ecosystem is increasingly a place of competition. It has now become a battleground both domestically and internationally, and we need to shore up our defenses.
0: There are a lot of countries that are, let's say, broadcasting or spreading disinformation, but this is Canon X, so we talk about Russia. And when you look at Russia, and we're talking about a war, wars usually have a very structured approach. You have the military, you would have the foreign ministry doing something. There's quite a strategy, strategic endeavor, as you put it. With Russia specifically, is this information war carried out on all of those bases, would you say? Military, foreign ministry, media, etc.? cetera?
1: Yeah, I think it's even beyond that. It not only involves the stuff that is part of an online influence campaign, those trolls and bots and fake articles and things like that. It also involves offline influence, whether that is through cultural organizations, it involves monetary influence and the funding of protests and political parties. It is truly an all-encompassing endeavor for Russia and also involves the creation of fake experts and organizations to lend credence to all of those narratives that it is seeding elsewhere. So I think we really need to understand that it involves not only all parts of the Russian government, but Russian society as well, that patriotic hackers are duped into or forced into sometimes participating in these campaigns, as well as the media, as well as think tanks and other organizations.
0: And then there's the golden retriever approach.
1: My favorite example, and I know you've heard me say this a million times, but I love this one, is a meme that the Internet Research Agency posted on its Being Patriotic Facebook page that was a golden retriever in a red and white star bandana. Between his paws, he held an American flag, and the text on the picture said, like if you think it's going to be a great week. That is very typical of the content that they were posting early on, and that's not disinformation except for the fact that it's coming from an inauthentic account, something posing to be an American grassroots organization. There's nothing wrong with a patriotic dog. I would probably like that picture, but... Over time, they used these positive techniques, sharing things like history about African Americans and their contributions to society, positive memes about American patriotism, depending on the audience, building that community, building trust, and then gradually having bigger and bigger asks. So that might have been sharing a post on Facebook, changing your profile picture in support of a cause, signing a petition, and then eventually even asking people to show up in real life. There were protests that occurred that were part of an internet research agency disinformation campaign. They organized from the ground up, and some other ones, they supported ones that were already going on. So again, it's not just about those cut and dry fakes, and it is organized by vulnerability, by interest, by emotion that is exploited over time.
0: Well, that makes it very difficult for people, doesn't it, to even recognize what's happening?
1: Yeah, that is one of the key problems. And I think one of the key genius points of these disinformation campaigns, not just Russian ones, it's very difficult to crack down on authentic local voices. We don't want people's free speech to be quashed. And at the same time, that openness is being exploited to share disinformation. So my tips to people are often just we have to be really, really careful, just like we don't trust emails that we get from Nigerian princes who claim they're going to make us rich we need to not trust everything that we see on the internet we need to have a bit of a filter to understand that there are plenty of people both inside and outside of our borders who want to manipulate us and we need to have our guards up just because we're in a facebook group that is meant for local moms for instance doesn't mean there aren't people who are inauthentically posing as a local mom and sharing divisive narratives in there Hundreds of protesters spread along the barricades on Independence Square, throwing whatever they could get their hands on.
0: Nina Jankowitz says if Americans had been paying attention to what was happening in Ukraine in 2014, just before the Euromaidan revolution, they might have been better prepared for Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election.
1: It was just stark to me. I felt like we were reinventing the wheel with our responses and not learning the lessons that our allies in Central and Eastern Europe had really learned the hard way. And I didn't want us to do that. And that's where the impetus and the inspiration for the book came from. I was just so inspired by the commitment of my colleagues in Ukraine and my colleagues around Central and Eastern Europe to defeating disinformation that I felt I had to tell their stories.
0: In your title, you use the expression fake news. Mm. What does fake news even mean right now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I actually had a little bit of a tiff with my publisher about that. They wanted fake news in there as a signpost for curious readers because that's how most people refer to disinformation and information operations. Information operations has a very wonky ring to it. It's not very appealing. What does that mean? I think fake news Most people at least understand the realm of what you're talking about. But it's not a term that I really embrace because I think it's been politicized in many ways. We've seen President Trump use it to disparage any reporting that he finds inconvenient to him and his plans. And then we've seen that behavior replicated in places like Poland with Jarosław Kaczynski, who leads the Law and Justice Party in the Philippines. Duterte has done this. Bolsonaro in Brazil has done this. Viktor Orban in Hungary also mimics this behavior. And that's really dangerous because it's getting at the freedom of the press and freedom of expression writ large. So I prefer to use much more specific terms, again, information operations to describe the realm of of information-related campaigns that bad actors use in order to score policy points or rearrange the global negotiating table, disinformation to describe misleading or false information that is shared with malign intent, which is different than misinformation, right? Which is not shared with that malign intent. And then there's a number of other terms that we also use in there, but I think those are the most important ones. And it's important that we be consistent and specific in what we're talking talking about, because these terms are being used as political footballs these days.
0: Yeah. Speaking of political footballs, I've talked with people about, let's say, the 2016 election, and you often hear, yeah, but no votes were actually changed. And even in the Mueller report, there's no definitive, well, due to Russian interference, 2% of the vote was changed or anything like that. What is the object, if they are not reaching in to a ballot box and changing votes, what is the objective here?
1: The objective is to undermine the participation in and functioning of democracy. Basically, by flooding the zone with information, by creating dismay and discontent in the population, people are going to participate less, whether that's in an action such as going to the ballot box to vote or even just in engaging in the consumption, the responsible consumption of information. Some people are just turning off. And when people aren't learning about what's going on in our society, they're not Going to write to their representative to demand more responsive governance. And ultimately, that allows Russia to point to everything that's going on in the United States or the United Kingdom or any country in the West, this civil unrest, this lack of functioning governance in the European Union, things like this, and say to Russian citizens, is that the sort of government you want? Is that what you're protesting for? It really fuels that whataboutist narrative. And basically buoys Putin's position. Not only domestically, but internationally. So I think those are the goals. And to me, it's not important that we can't pinpoint that votes for change. If you look at the sheer amount. Of and engagement in the disinformation generated just by the Internet Research Agency. It's really staggering. It's billions of engagements and interactions. And not only that, we can pinpoint it more specifically with the hack and leak operation that affected the Democratic National Committee in 2016. The fact that the Russian security services hacked into the DNC, released documents through WikiLeaks. That changed how the campaigns behaved, how they talked about themselves and each other, how the media covered the election. And that ultimately, we must understand, had an effect on how voters thought and behaved in the election.
0: What can we do? Should we just hack back? Should we fight back? Should we disinform them, too? And it's a big debate because there are some people who say, yeah, we ought to do that and more. And then there are other people who think there's not a lot that you can do. You have to educate the public. All of these debates. So where do you come down on that?
1: I think in any response, we need to keep democratic norms and human rights at our core. I really worry that by launching counter disinformation attacks, we are just stooping to the level of the Russians themselves. And I would not want to see us do that. We need to stand by transparency and openness and freedom of speech in all of this work. So I'm not necessarily of the opinion that we should launch counter-offensives. I think Reinvesting in our democratic values at home is one of the best advertisements that we can make in terms of a counter disinformation narrative. Unfortunately, the polarization and just lack of any movement in Washington, our paralysis right now, our lack of responsiveness to citizens and protest movements is basically doing a lot of Moscow's work for it. In terms of more concrete ways that we can push back, I'm a huge proponent of media literacy, civics, just basic information and digital literacy that we've not really invested fulsomely in here in the United States. If you compare us to a country like Finland or Sweden or Estonia or even Ukraine, which has made media literacy part of its secondary school curriculum these days, we've not done anything like that. And that's partially due to our federal education system, but it always comes back to education in these discussions. And I like to remind everyone that we also need to reach the voting age population. And we can do that through grants to libraries, which are still fairly trusted institutions here in the United States. We can involve the social media companies, which have nearly ubiquitous access to many Americans' lives in order to build these awareness campaigns. And we can enlist trusted third parties to deliver these messages. Because let's face it, the U.S. government is not the most trusted entity right now. And if some Fed came on my screen telling me to think before I share, I would be quite dubious myself as well. So we need to think creatively about this. And then finally, something that I keep coming back to, especially as we head toward the 2020 election, is we need to make an investment in journalism as a public good. The fact that the United States only spends $3 per person per year on our corporation for public broadcasting, and we're, seeing increasing restrictions on our federally funded broadcasters abroad, like RFERL and Voice of America, we need to understand that that investment in information benefits everyone. And it certainly benefits Americans in news deserts, where sometimes NPR and PBS are the only local stations that they have covering issues in their communities. I think that's key. I think when there is a vacuum of local news that some spurious information is going to fill that vacuum, and that's what we're seeing a lot of, especially during the coronavirus crisis. So I think, again, investing in those core principles of our democracy, giving citizens the tools they need to navigate this information environment and be more informed and active, that is the best antidote to me.
0: Nina Jankowicz on her new book, How to Lose the Information War. And for this podcast, the recording of the Russian national anthem is from the Kremlin.ru website through Creative Commons. The 2014 news report on the Maidan revolution is from CNN. Kennan X is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.